Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll gamify the future and look at moths cruising on electric tricycles for science. But first up, here's the news. Robot insects take wing. Half the size of a paperclip, weighing less than a tenth of a gram, Harvard Robotics Laboratory has robots that fly with tiny flapping wings. Professor Robert J. Wood has been working for 12 years to achieve this result, and it's only been possible because of the development of new manufacturing techniques, new materials, and design. They need to flap the robot's wings 120 times every second, but at this small scale, you can't use electromagnetic motors. The solution is piezoelectric strips that expand and contract when an electric current is applied. This allows each wing to be precisely controlled independently in real time. At insect scales, small changes in airflow can have huge effects, so the control system has to react that much faster for the flying robot to be stable. Future versions of the robots could be used for environmental monitoring or crop pollination. These prototypes are still linked to the ground by a cable that feeds them power and control. There aren't yet power supplies small enough to fit on the robot insect's body to let it fly. At the moment, the computer is on the desktop on the end of the wire, but the team are working on a tiny computer that will be small enough to just control the robot. Their aim is to apply insights from real insects to the design of their robot insect. The Harvard project brings together scientists and engineers to build smaller batteries, more efficient computers, stronger and lighter materials, and insights from biology. The result is a robot bee that can achieve vertical takeoff, hovering, and steering. Just don't talk about the drones. Janine Carl is a futurist and serious game maker. I spoke with her outdoors in a park in Sydney about gamifying the future. So Janine, I was reading a book about serious games recently called Reality is Broken. And the idea was that when we are doing work in the normal world, if it's something we really love, then we'll just do it. But there's a lot of things where there's not a lot of point to it and we hate it. 
we really don't want to do it. But in a game situation where we're getting points or we're going up a level, we're happy to do some really boring, similar sort of repetitive work because we're getting this reward that is not available at the moment in the real world. So the suggestion of the author is that reality is broken. It should be more like games because then we'd be more willing to do things that we need to do that we'd rather not do. What do you think? Is that the case? Do we need to gamify the world? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And actually, I've had a range of experiences in that. We've designed a number of, of um, serious games played with the public. We also have, I've also designed games for corporates and part of degrees, both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees. And one of the things I found in particular was running in an undergraduate program. We designed a, a three-day simulation and in the past they'd just done some team building activities and so on and you know had a bit of fun and of course all the students would go to to the pub on the Saturday night just over a whole weekend and you know etc. <laughs> Things that are not necessarily as conducive to learning as you would hope. The first year I took it on and designed these simulations which people would spend three days actually inside a game, gamified space. Nobody, we, t we had the bus ready to take the, the students, these are 23 year olds, to the pub on the Saturday night. Not one student would leave the game. So all the lecturers, <laughs> we, we went off to the, the local pub in the, in the village, uh, came back and the students are still working. They could not stop. I always said that I could teach a strategy program in a five-day simulation more than I could in a year of lectures and tutorials and so on. It's the incidental learning. And people will do repetitive tasks. They'll do the data analysis. They'll do whatever it takes because it's in a game. It's competitive, collaborative. It, it draws on a whole range of different, different skills and capabilities. Uh, so I, I'm quite excited about that. The other, the other thing that we've done in the past also is um, I do have a serious games lab and so we design serious games. Serious games are just games with a purpose additional to entertainment. So for example we ran a, a one for Vibewire Youth Media and Arts organisation called A Race Against Time 2029 and I work as a futurist so part of my real purpose of doing this is to how do you communicate the future in new ways because people consider the future as unknowable yet we can know it and we can learn about it, we can think about it. Um, so we ran a race against time 2029 and that had a sub-theme of um, climate change, uh, etc. So, you know, you start with a video of someone from 2029 communicating and, and it involved people just running around parts of the city, taking photos, just um, gathering information. You know, that was a light, you know, several hour exercise but you can actually take people really deeply into this stuff. Another one which I which we ran, um, I worked with a, a bunch of young designers, amazing young designers and we designed a, a game for the Ultimo Science Festival. We based it on the SKA, the SCAR project, the Square Kilometre Array because it's one of the most exciting projects around, not only because it's about uh, the astrophysics and the, the what we're going to learn about humans and the Big Bang and uh, etc. But it's going, because of the data requirements, it's going to change the face of computing. So it actually changes a whole range of professions just by its existence. And I think that's incredibly exciting and that's the piece that um, needs to be communicated. So we ran a game, 
which was aimed at um, young children, primary school children to young adults. And, you know, the primary school children will be the ones who will be the computer scientists and the engineers and the um, astrophysicists and the mathematicians who will be running this project. And that's what's so exciting. So, you know, again, it's how do you gamify it? How do you get people to understand they're looking back into the past as they actually walk through a process? You know, so there's some quite challenging concepts to get across, but how do you do it in a gamified way? It's actually much easier than you think. And it draws on, as people play a game, they're not thinking, it's all incidental learning. So it's quite exciting and they get excited at the same time about the projects that they're working on. And the whole thing about foresight is it's so key to exciting young people about the possibility of their professions. I was just discussing this morning with Andy Dong, the um, Warren Center Chair of Engineering Innovation, the challenge of uh, exciting young engineers about their profession. And you know, it's it's sort of like you know the post Brunel era. You know, what do we do? Do we do we get excited about the amazing engineering achievements of James Watt and Brunel and, and so on? Or do we actually excite them about the possibilities of the future instead and enable them to actually grasp the, the challenges that the future offers? And he, like me, <laughs> is very into how do you actually engage them in the future rather than in the past? And unfortunately, most of our engineering programs and other programs are designed to reflect on the past. We spend an awful lot of money on the history of every profession without looking at the future of the profession. Even if we were to, to use 10% of the money spent on, say, the history of architecture, the history of engineering, the history of science, it would be amazing what we could do with 10% of that money focused on the future of these professions. And it's the way to, to really engage young people. Reality is broken. Simulation is, is, is the most exciting thing about learning. And isn't that, it's very natural for humans, isn't that the way that children play? Absolutely. I used to talk a while ago when, about games being, you know, blurring the lines between play, do, think and be. And I'm grandmother now, so I'm actually watching my grandchildren experiment. The way they explore and experiment, they will actually, you know, you see a toddler go to a cupboard and they open it up, they pull everything out, they look at it, feel it, throw it on the floor, then pick up another one. And if it's complex, they'll stay there with it, trying to work out how to open it, how to move it, etc., before they throw it on the floor. So they actually are little scientists. They're actually exploring and experimenting with their world. So they don't see anything different between play, do, think, be, work. So how do we start to engage that um, innate sense of exploration that we, we still have, even as grandparents? <laughs> yes, yeah, so obviously I'm of a different generation from, from them, yet um, you can actually go around about in the world as, a, as an explorer, experimenter, and actually enjoy what we're doing. Absolutely. And I mean, there's so many things. Um, if you're in a virtual world, if you're in an online world, or if you're in a role-playing game of some sort, and your character doesn't have the dexterity and the strength that you want, then you level up. You do the extra work it takes to get your levels up to where you can do what you want to do. 
but people don't automatically apply that to real life. And so they don't want to go to the gym and they don't see it as leveling up. But if they did, perhaps they would um, want to get to the next level if it was, if their level of fitness or dexterity or whatever thing it was that was a bit of work to achieve, if that was portrayed in a game style, would people maybe be more willing to put the work in or find it easier to put the work in? Would it be more fun to put the work in? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's all about fun. So if you could actually gamify all the learning steps that people need to take to actually achieve what they want, um, people would actually understand it more. You know, there's a lot of research on motivation at work and, you know, the, the key things are autonomy and enablement. So if you actually give people the, the control over their learning, capability, development, whatever it is, mm. um, career choice, as well as enabling them to get the skills that they need to, to achieve what they want to achieve, you end up with a great result. People will work so much harder and, and, and enjoy it. This is the thing. Enjoyment's not just about, you know, some people say, oh, the creative ideas of uh, enjoying things. You know, you have the silly balls in the, in the workplace and the toys or, or whatever. It's not, it's, it's beyond that. It's um, people, people's enjoyment is really about fulfilling their higher goals fulfilling their purpose that is what enjoyment is it's not you know so having fun doesn't necessarily mean you have to be laughing <laughs> as yes. you can see, tell if ever you watch a, a room full of people playing games simulated environments like world of warcraft or, or whatever yeah so it's engaging people on lots of different yeah. levels at once yeah so it, it's fun because you're doing it with other people it's fun because you're exploring it's fun because you've got goals and there's rewards and what are the other things that make it fun that are missing? Um, also creativity. So getting the chance to explore what this idea means to me or to, to the other people in my team. I think that's really, that's another piece that people really do enjoy. So having that autonomy about self-expression um, is really key. Yep. Other things that make it fun, competition, yes, collaboration, and, and while they are opposing, so you work out, you design games that actually enable some form of competition, so there's a sense of urgency, you know, oh, I have to do this in this time because the other team's going to get there, yes. but you also enforce the collaboration by requiring them to get information, to share information across teams, hmm. um, and that's a really key, key piece. And so when you're actually designing games, there's a lot, it's very heavily engineered. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't easily, it doesn't happen. You, you enable a structure in which things can occur, but you have no control over what occurs. Right, and that's so, the exciting piece. Yes, <laughs> so it's about structures that enable the, yeah. the experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose the, the biggest thought I'd like to leave people with is this one about um, how you excite people about the future. Take the knowledge we've gained in the past, absolutely important key to understanding the future. Yet how do you create experiences that enable us to create a more positive future? What's interesting is though that this is shifting my company used to do interviews with people and um, young people in particular in about say 2005 to 2007 and in that period 
the ads was very much the future gets done to you and in order to cope with the future people do meditation and go bushwalking or running or something um, that's actually a very scary situation where people feel no locus of control that's highly stressful we know the research on that the brain's response to body's response to that kind of uh, lack of control but now more and more we're getting stories of oh the things I do actually create the future so there is one there's an understanding developing but it is actually a big paradigm shift that people actually feel that they are getting more control of the future and we know that that is the autonomy that motivates us to actually contribute. Janine Carl, thank you very much. Thanks Ian, it's great to talk. That was Janine Carl speaking with me about the serious business of fun in the future in a beautiful but noisy Sydney park. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Have insect Daleks returned? It's moths cruising for sexy females on robotic tricycles. Back in 2005, I reported how engineer and artist Garnet Hertz at the University of California, Irvine, had developed a three-wheeled robot car that giant Madagascan hissing cockroaches could drive by walking on a ping-pong ball attached to a trackball. His aim was to show that an insect could drive a robot vehicle. Eight years later, in 2013, biomimicry engineers from the Research Center for Advanced Science and Technology at the University of Tokyo have done exactly the same thing, but with moths. Their aim is to have their moths drive robot cars to track things by lust. Sexy Daleks. The trackball works like a computer mouse. As the cockroach or moth walks, the ball spins and the three-wheeled cart moves in the direction the insect intended to go, only much faster and further. The cockroaches were given feedback to help them steer by a ring of lights that stopped them bumping into things. The giant Madagascan hissing cockroaches were merely given the ability to drive wherever they wanted. But building on that accomplishment, the Japanese moths have been put to work. But before we get to the details, have animals piloted vehicles before? Between 1983 and 1985, Mark Pauline founder of Survivor Research Labs, had a four-legged walking machine piloted by a guinea pig. The guinea pig, named Stu, was trained to drive the machine by rewards of lettuce. Although Stu was trained to enjoy entering the robot, once he was inside, Stu tended to shift himself into a position that stopped the robot moving. There are videos on YouTube from the Broadway performance of all the surreal machines, but you don't see much of Stu. In 1997, Ken Ronaldo created a device driven by four Siamese fighting fish that could see each other from four separate bowls. The fish determined the direction and speed of robot motorized arms that held their bowl by crossing any of six light beams to move their fish tanks. This changed the fish's view of the world and location in space but didn't let them kill their rival fish. 
So the fish would swim around in the bowl and the arm would move the bowl. The fish actually watched each other through the air between their bowls of water. Ken Rinaldo went on to develop a living tongue installation where an artificial stomach with live stomach bacteria controlled a giant robot tongue. When a human sits in the tongue chair, if the artificial stomach population of bacteria is happily breeding, then the human gets a massage from the tongue. I shudder to think what happens when the bacteria are unhappy. Male silk moths are famous for having what may be the most sensitive smelling system in the world, as long as that smell is a female silk moth in heat. The scientific name of the silk moth is Bombyx mori, and the female sex pheromone that the males follow is called Bombicol. Back in Japan in 1995, the researchers recorded the signals from a male silk moth's antenna when it was detecting female sex pheromones. Then they attached the antenna to a robot and successfully steered the robot to the source of the scent by using the decoded electrical signals from the detached silk moth antennae. In 2010, this information was used to direct a moth that had electrodes attached to its antennae and which was lifted into the air by a helium balloon. The paper is titled Remote Control of a Cyborg Moth Using Nanotube Enhanced Flexible Neuroprosthetic Probe. And now, in 2013, moths were able to navigate their electric tricycle to a target location inside a wind tunnel. The Japanese scientists tested 14 male moths, which individually had to guide their robot vehicles towards female sex pheromone scents. They were so good at this that the researchers teased the moths by making things harder. Like a juggler replacing one of his juggling balls with a bowling ball, they needed to test the limits. To make things more difficult for the silk moths, they made one of the wheel's motors stronger than the others, giving the vehicle a turning bias that the moths had to overcome. Picture this, you try to move your robot vehicle towards the alluring scent of a female wafting through the wind tunnel, and you keep turning too far to the right. The moths still reached their sexy female moth-smelling target. The moths track chemical concentration from dilute to concentrated to track a few molecules as they get more numerous and stronger smelling all the way back to the source. For airborne chemicals, moths appear to use the strategy of surging upwards into the air and then zigzagging to pick up the scent molecules. Of course, they couldn't do this as naturally while strapped into the pilot chair of a wheeled vehicle. Perhaps in the future, the moths will be piloting winged flying robot insects like the ones recently developed at Harvard University where the more natural flying strategies could be used. The Japanese engineers hope to turn the moths' attention to tracking the odours given off by industrial chemical leaks and spills like a cyborg insect bloodhound. They aim to try and replicate what the moths' sensory motor system does in electronics or, failing that, to simply keep harnessing the moths, like canaries in coal mines, if those canaries were attached to robotic vehicles that gave them the power to move towards a gas leak and snuff them out. Perhaps genetic engineering could make the moths turned on by scents more useful than silk moth girls gone wild. The paper published in the Bioinspiration and Biomimetics Journal of IOP Science from the Institute of Physics is titled Odor Tracking Capability of a Silk Moth driving a mobile robot with turning bias and time delay. 
Garnet Hertz was directly inspired by the remote-controlled cockroach project of Professor Iseo Shimayama at the University of Tokyo in 2001. Signals from a radio remote control were received by the cockroach's backpack computer and used to control the cockroach's movement by stimulating electrodes implanted in their antennae. With microphones and cameras, the cockroach became a remotely controlled bugged bug. Professor Shimayama had hopes of the remotely controlled cockroaches being used to find survivors in rubble after an earthquake. One of the bug cockroaches was depicted in the movie The Fifth Element. The American Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, also had remotely controlled rats with electrodes implanted in their brains. The rats felt artificially happy whenever they moved in the direction dictated by their handlers. Having the animals remotely control their own robots is a much more humane use of resources. Strangely, the Tokyo Moth researchers don't mention Garnet Hertz's pioneering work at all in their paper. Despite their insect-steered vehicle looking like a much smaller version of Hertz's insect-steered vehicle, and the videos of the moths driving look very reminiscent of the cockroaches driving. Perhaps it's because Hertz's work was labelled an art project. I hope the Japanese haven't reinvented the insect-controlled wheel. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all for this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can send your opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send us email so we know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Subscribe to the podcast on our Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And join the conversation on Facebook, on Diffusion Science Radio. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, <laughs> ha,